0: in 1 Timothy, and we're going through it really just chapter by chapter. Now, this is a little out of the norm for us as a church. We, uh, we actually like to go through books more on like a, a, a verse by verse or passage by passage basis, but we really wanted to get like a broad overview of these two pastoral epistles uh, that Paul had written to Timothy and, and get an idea of sort of the, the broad overview of his uh, theology and his practice that he's encouraging us toward. And one of the things that I love about uh, Paul's letters, in general, is sort of the the physical imagery that he loves to use. Uh, it, just actually, a few weeks ago, when I did sort of an overview of, of First Timothy broadly, I, I, I compared Paul to a boxer throwing a punch. He he was founded on this firm foundation of the gospel, and he was applying it as he wrote this letter. Right again, like I, that's probably uh, a. a just not a like it's a physical metaphor. Sorry that uh, that Paul might have used, but he didn't actually use. But he did use a, use several more. He said in First Timothy six twelve that we should fight the good fight of faith. Right? You know this verse. First Corinthians nine twenty six says, "I do not run aimlessly. I do not fight like I am beating the air." He liked these sort of metaphors. In Second Timothy four seven, as as Paul perhaps writes the last letter of of his life here on earth. He said, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. He loved to use physical athletic metaphors about the Christian life. And I love that because we all know that the Christian life can be a struggle. Can I get an amen? There's pressure on every side of our lives. There's just temptation. There's there's people saying, no, 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 you can't believe that, or you can't put that that into practice. It's hard sometimes to put our doctrine even into practice. Think about it. In this world, people want to undermine absolute truth. They want to say there's no such thing as absolute objective reality, and therefore there cannot be one God. There cannot be a, a creation that's founded upon God himself. It's a struggle even to, to practice our faith because without absolute truth, then what's closest to the core begins to unravel, and we've seen this. The, the, the nuclear family has begun to unravel. We've seen just all sorts of different ways where even, even types of murder are permissible now. Things have begun to unravel because there's no such thing as absolute truth in the minds of many in this culture. And so we feel this pressure. It feels like a fight in order to maintain our Christian faith in light of all of that. And so we need to be able to fight. But fighting requires training. In order to be an effective fighter, you need to build your strength and dexterity and then apply those things with good technique, right? You need to be able to get some exercise in, build your strength so that you can actually throw that punch and get your dexterity in so that you know how to throw it accurately and get good technique in so you make sure that you deliver all of the energy that you're putting into that to the end of your fist. Likewise, we need to be able to train ourselves for godliness so that we can fight all of the stuff of this world that tempts us to do otherwise. In this passage, we're going to see how good and necessary it is for all Christians, especially those who desire to be leaders, to know, the, Christ, to know this, the Christian scriptures, the only scriptures, and live as examples for those around them. This whole passage that I'm going to be in today, which is 1 Timothy 4, if you want to start flipping there, is about godliness and the example that sets up for the rest of the flock. We need to be pursuing that, training ourselves for it, not only because of the example, but because it gives us a leg up as we enter eternity. We're going to see that, oh, well, this isn't quite as different as I thought it was because I was already practicing some of those, those things in a small and diminished way. But yes, I, this seems familiar to me when we get there. Why don't you guys stand with me? We're not gonna read the whole chapter uh, in one standing here, but I wanna read a core verse today that has to do with that sort of idea of training ourselves for godliness. 1 Timothy 4, 7 through 8 says, have nothing to do with irreverent silly myths. Rather, train yourself for godliness. For while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way as it holds promise for the present life and for the life to come. May God bless the reading of his word. Lord God, I pray that you would be with us, that you would help us to comprehend mentally what you have said, and Lord God, may your Holy Spirit apply it to our hearts, that Lord, we might not simply mentally assent to it, but that we might believe in it. Lord God, help us to trust you. Help us to trust what you are saying to us and help us to see that it is good. I pray, Lord God, that you would lead us back to you where we have strayed and that you would encourage us where we have pursued you. I thank you, Lord God, for this. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. You guys can have a seat. Like I said, we're gonna end up going through this, this whole chapter today, uh, hopefully pretty briskly, and uh, get a kind of an overview of what's going on. And so we're going to start at the beginning here. I'm going to read the first five verses. It says this, Now the Spirit expressly says that in later times some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and the teachings of demons through the ins- insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared who forbid marriage and require abstinence from foods that God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. For everything created by God is good, and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving, for it is made holy by the word of God and prayer. The first thing that Paul gets at here in this particular chapter, is he comes back to this uh, dialogue that he's having about false teachers with Timothy. This is sort of a main point of Paul having written 1 Timothy, because there was a lot of nasty false teaching happening in the church at Ephesus. And so he writes this letter to Timothy, who's one of the, the elders there, and he says, hey, this is, this is what you need to do. You need to resist the false doctrines, and you need to cling completely to, to the good doctrine, the pattern of sound words, he would say in 2 Timothy, that I have taught to you. The good teaching. He says, cling to that. But first he, he gets to this idea that false teachers will encourage the misuse of God's good gifts. False teachers will encourage the misuse of God's good gifts. He cites marriage and food here, and while I'd love to go little by little through this, I want to kind of, again, give a broad overview here. So I just want to touch on marriage. He says that these people in Ephesus were teaching that, that marriage was forbidden. It's a misuse of God's good gift of marriage. Sure, there are some people who are called to be single. We know that. However, we know that marriage is a good thing. And so these teachers were saying, no, 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 you cannot get married. It is bad. It is wrong. They were calling something that God called good, bad. They were twisting what marriage was supposed to be. I, I see this even in, in the church today. I, I alluded it to it earlier a little bit. So there's There's problems even now with the idea of marriage, but it's not... The, the forbidding of marriage necessarily. It's things like allowing fornication between unmarried people. Churches affirm these things or allow them to continue to exist within their walls without any sort of dialogue happening, without any correction. It's just sort of not talked about. In fact, the word fornication probably like, sets this culture's hairs on end. There's, a, there's no such thing in their minds. Likewise, I've seen churches that, that allow marriage between people of the same sex. That's a perversion of God's good design for marriage. It's twisting something that God made good. Other churches affirm gender fluidity and marriage as a part of that. They also, and this is maybe hitting a little closer to, the, to home here, In a lot of reformed and highly doctrinal churches, they would still sometimes affirm wrongful divorce and remarriage among Christians. It's a twisting, just a subtle twisting of what God has designed for marriage. Of course, there are some caveats to what's allowable, divorce and things like that, but let's just say this. Falling out of love is not a reason for divorce. The spark isn't there. That's that's not a reason for divorce. Or or we just decided that we love other people. That's not valid. Churches don't like to talk about this because this is hot button, right? In the culture, it's already been decided. But it's a twisting of God's good design for marriage. False teachers love to do this. They love to subtly twist things such that if you aren't really paying attention, you don't even see the distortion. But by the time you follow it to its logical ends, you're already so far off that you don't even know what the truth is anymore. Marriage is good as God intended it, but it can be used for evil if it's distorted. So the question becomes, how does one develop such a seared conscience that you would actually teach something like this or allow something like this in your church? It talks about uh, how their, their consciences are seared because they are liars. How do you get to that point though? Because People don't have seared consciences all of a sudden most of the time. It happens over the course of time. That's why they often continue to call themselves Christian even though they have repudiated the faith. How does that happen? Well, I think one of the key ways is by taking exceptions to God's word we look at God's word and we say, well, I don't really like this little piece over here, so I'm just gonna maybe not even talk about that. I, I won't disaffirm it publicly, but I'm just not gonna talk about it. This hard passage, we won't talk about that because you know that could be divisive or, or a little bit of an issue. For example, taking a, a passage such as First Timothy 2 at the, at the end, uh, talking about letting a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness, 2.11, Saying that's merely cultural and does not apply to the church today and allowing female eldership? That's a twist. That's saying, oh, we're going to disregard this one little piece of scripture that makes us feel real uncomfortable in our egalitarian culture. But if you hold to it, then you don't have to worry about the mental gymnastics it takes in order to say, well, we're going to ignore this, we're going to practice this other thing, but we're still going to call ourselves Christian. If you simply practice what the word says, you're in a good spot. And I would argue it's far less exhausting. Because it's often exhausting for these people, at least at the beginning. That's... How we develop seared consciences is we go to the word and we go, well, I don't really like this. This makes me feel uncomfortable. I'm not going to worry about practicing that today. I know my devotions led me here and that God is providentially sovereign over all things. And so whatever devotional book you're in, guess what? God led you there. I looked at my devotions today and and man, like, I don't really like that. I'm not going to put that into practice. That, you know, that's a good word for somebody else. No, that's a good word for you today. If that makes you uncomfortable, in fact, you should probably put that to practice more than the person who reads it and accepts it with joy. If you're like, man, that's challenging, great. Put it into practice. Don't just go, I'm going to ignore this thing because it makes me uncomfortable. Because people who who teach these things, because of people who, who teach these things, these twists in the scriptures, we have to be vigilant. We cannot be lazy in our knowledge of the truth. We need to know God's word, the doctrine of his word. That's why I gave Brian and Tara that book, Cornerstones. It's, it's a great place to go to get the basics of the Christian faith, and it leads you to even ask more questions. I often say this. It's, it's important that you develop categories for things, not so that you know all the answers, but so that you can ask the right questions. I read a thing this morning, I forgot where it was from, that it said, uh, if you like, actually read the word of God and you ask questions of it, you may actually find you're asking the wrong questions. I was like, that's a, that's a good word.
1: I was like, I'm into that.
0: Because we need to be vigilant. Uh, chapter 3, verse 15, uh, talks about... Uh, how the church is a pillar and a buttress of the truth. How can the church be a pillar and buttress of the truth, a support of the truth, if the church does not know the truth? We must embrace the word of God in its totality, and we need to know it. Look, I'm intellectually uh, uh, consistent enough to say yes Christians in in ancient history were probably not literate. They were not able to read the word for themselves. They might not have had the same access that we do, okay? Those people were in church once a day a lot of the time, maybe even more than once a day. They were hearing the word read. They were learning it. Just because we don't go to church every single day doesn't mean... That we can't go to the Word every single day to learn what God has said. Why is it it's so important though that we do this? Again, the church is to be a, a, a pillar and a buttress of the truth. We have to support the truth we have to hold it up against the culture, against the prevailing winds of the day, and we have to hold it firmly. And so we must do something. We need to train ourselves for godliness. I'm going to read verses six through 11. It says this: "If you put these things before the brothers, you will be a good servant of Christ Jesus, being trained in the words of the faith and having uh, sorry, being trained uh, in the words of the faith and of good doctrine that you have followed." Have nothing to do with irreverent, silly myths. Rather, train yourself for godliness. For while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way, as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. For to this end we toil and strive because we have our hopes set on the living God, who is the Savior of all people, especially of those who believe. Command and teach these things the beginning of this passage there's just wonderful juxtaposition he says have nothing to do with silly irreverent myths but have everything to do with godliness he sets them apart from one another they are they're uh just juxtaposed to one another right so he says focus on that which is stable that which is secure and unassailable and apply that to, to, which is clear to that which is unclear and then leave behind the conjecture and the vague theories that only serve to muddy the water. If you find yourself asking a lot of theoretical questions about the faith that have really nothing to do with you deep down, you might need to shift what questions you're asking. In fact, if you don't ask any questions at all, maybe it's time to start asking them. But that's a different sermon. Sound doctrine isn't about conjecture. It's not about theories. It's about what is sure and unmoving. Lots of people get caught up in asking questions upon questions about the most absurd topics. And in fact, this is, a, this is my, my fun uh, historical theology bit for the day. There was one medieval theologian who was and, and philosopher who was trying to work through uh, a few things spiritually, and he asked the question, how many angels can dance on the head of a pen? Have you heard this one? How many angels can dance on the head of a pen? For him, that was an honest question because he was trying to figure out some different things they like they had decided that angels perhaps have matter but they're so small that it, he was asking all it was like wait a second this guy's asking a crazy question right now I mean I think we all just kind of scoffed at that question just a little bit right as many angels as want to dance on the head of the pin can probably dance on the head of a pin right but he was asking this question but he maybe should have been asking something far more basic He perhaps should have been asking something about salvation, eternal life, rather than just the physicality of angels. We need to be focused. We can't spend all of our time on these secondary, tertiary, and just vaguely theoretical issues. We need to solidify the core and work our way out. What if we focused on what was truly meaningful? Think about it. What happens when you focus in, too bad Jordan's not in here. What happens when you focus in on like a particular muscle group? Right? Like rather than, than trying to exercise all the things, you say, no, no I'm, gonna, I'm gonna do upper body today, I'm gonna do lower body today, or I'm just gonna do quads today, or whatever it is. When you focus on that particular muscle group, it gets stronger. You start exercising that, man, it gets better that's why Paul, he kind of gives, gives this idea of physical training. He said it is of some value. He talks about physical training as, as something that, that is valuable in some sense. And I can tell, tell you this from experience. I know that's the case. All right. I might not look, at, look like it. All right. But uh, when I went into the hospital and, and had COVID, and then I ended up having an auto, autoimmune disorder and being paralyzed for a while, uh, late last year, I had to do physical therapy afterward. And I'll tell you what, those people work you hard. But we had to focus. It was, it was about, work, like during my physical therapy, it was usually about working my lower body, getting me to walk again. And I praise God for those people because they pushed me. They were like, I know that those muscles aren't firing. Your brain can't talk to those muscles right now, but we're going to ask you to try to do it anyway. And then they're, they're just like helping me just a little bit, just little by little able to do it. And, you know, even just like telling me, hey, okay, like grab these two parallel bars and just push yourself up by your arms and hold yourself there. Even though your legs are like wet noodles, just hold yourself there. Focus, they said, on, on walking. Focus on, this is a, a great one, I had to learn to brush my teeth again. I couldn't bring my arms up and I couldn't control my face. So, like, they, they had to teach me to, to brush my teeth. I had to focus on that thing, that one little, small, mundane thing in order to develop that muscle strength, that dexterity back again. I know that physical training is of some value, okay? But Paul says it's of, of in other translations, little value in comparison to training for godliness. Whether I walked again or not, my relationship with Jesus Christ was more important. It's what kept me going on the darkest days, that and the prayers of this church and and lots of others. I know that my pursuit of godliness before that happened got me through that. That God had prepared me for that moment, getting through that pursuing godliness, though. Or actually, let's let's define real quick. I like to define terms. All right, godliness sounds like a great thing for a Christian to have, but what is it really? Well, it's really the constant refrain of this book, and it's a constant refrain that I've had since we began walking through this, and really through the life of this church. I said it last week, orthodoxy and orthopraxy, right doctrine or right belief and right practice. That's what godliness is. I believe the right things and I act upon those things as if they were absolutely true. Orthodoxy, orthopraxy, right doctrine, right practice. That's godliness in its most foundational definition Godliness is right belief leading to right action. And you think about all these other things that might take precedence. You're like, well, I I don't really have time to read my Bible or to spend time in prayer, but man, like, I had this other thing. I gotta go to the gym today. I have to study for a test. I have to, to train for this thing at work. All of those different types of training are of some value, perhaps little value, but godliness is of incomparable value. Pursuing godliness will actually lead you into some of these other things. If you pursue godliness, you are going to be a good steward of God's creation. And so you're going to maybe pursue some physical health to varying degrees. You're going to go, man, I want to be a good steward of the life that God has given me. And therefore your, your godliness then drives the training, physically speaking. It might also lead you to uh, mental training, right? The uh, mental acuity that you need in order to understand what's in the word, or uh, even just the idea of like renewing your mind, right? Pursuing godliness will lead to a renewal of your mind. That's Romans 12:1 and 2. Mental acuity is required to some degree, to know what's true and what's false. If you hear a false teacher, you have to be able to identify what's going on here. But if you pursue that just as an end in and of itself, it does you no good. But if you pursue godliness first, and then you say, I want to know more. I want to be able to read Greek and Hebrew. I wish I could. I use the lexicon. I want to be able to do these things so that I can know God more. That's a wonderful thing. Same thing relationally speaking. You might think, well, I need to to get up on my social skills. I need to get some relationships rolling and and things like that. But if you treat that as an end in and of itself, rather than pursuing godliness that leads to those applications, that leads to those relationships or that social skill, then if you do that, then that relational strength is really going to be there when you need it. If godliness leads to your relationships, you're going to have people around you that can hold up your arms when you can't hold them above your head anymore. Some of you guys get that imagery? Moses on the mountain, right? He needs his friends beside him, holding his arms up so that Israel can win the battle. If your relationships are founded in Jesus Christ, driven off of a desire for godliness, man, those are some good friendships. Those are some really good friendships. I would say the, the goal of the Christian life is truly godliness. It says the will of God for your life is sanctification. I forgot what the reference is, but it's in there, I promise. Google for that. Somebody help me out if you want to. We are also told that as, a, as an additional motivation, as if thanksgiving for salvation wasn't enough, we're also told that there, are, there is a reward in heaven for those who practice godliness here and now. 1 Corinthians 3:14 says the work that anyone has built on the if the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. Some people build with straw and hay and things that will burn up in that last day. But others build with gold that won't burn. What is he saying? He's saying in this passage That if you pursue godliness and let that lead to faithfulness in your life, there is a reward for that on the other side of this life. That's crazy to me, okay? All right, that's crazy because think about it, all right? You don't bring anything to your salvation except the sin that makes it necessary. We say that all the time. God says, okay, I'm going to save you. I'm gonna justify you. I'm gonna make you right with me. And then I am going to give you eternal life, which is an amazing gift on top of that. And then he says, I'm going to reward you for your faithfulness in this life. Woo! Like grace upon grace upon grace. Man, as if we needed more motivation to pursue godliness. Why is godliness of every value, of the, of the highest value as compared to physical training or any other kind of training? Man, A, it glorifies your savior. B, you get rewards in heaven. How cool is that? So the question becomes, how do we express godliness in our lives? Well, I, I would say that it leads us back to the law the Ten Commandments, and the, the expression that Jesus use, uses around that. Love of God and love of neighbor. So what does love for God look like? Well, I, I would say that it's a love for God that leads us to obedience and worship. All right? It's not just a general feeling of love toward God. It's a love of God that leads us to obedience and worship. And so if you love God, you are going to find him in his word. You're going to spend time with him in prayer. You're going to obey his commands, hope in him, trust him, and worship him. That's what it's about. That's godliness expressed. And likewise, you're going to have love for fellow man that leads to service. So your love for God leads to obedience and worship, and your love for fellow man leads to service. If you love your neighbor, you will reach out to them. You will encourage and correct them. Ooh, it's a hard one. You're going to care for them. You're going to preach the gospel to them. Hard stuff in this culture. Hard stuff at all times, I think. But that's love. But I feel like maybe I've put the cart before the horse here because this is what we like to call the third use of the law. This isn't a means to your salvation, okay? The law is used first to condemn our sin and to condemn us as sinners. The second use of the law is to restrain evil. And the third use of the law, which is what we're getting at today, is the means by which we live a godly and thankful life toward our Savior. It's not for our salvation. The the law could never save. The law gives us a guide for the Christian life. How do we love God and neighbor? And we do this in freedom, knowing that our sins are paid for in Jesus Christ as we have faith in him. Those who are trained well in, in godliness, this kind of godliness that's born out of salvation, You're going to serve as wonderful examples to the church as they follow Christ, which is really the the last piece of this passage today. Um, Verses 12 through 16 say this, let no one despise you for your youth, but important part, set the believers an example in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, in purity. Until I come, devote, devote yourself to the public teaching of scripture, to exhortation, to teaching. Do not neglect the gift you have which was given to you by prophecy when the council of elders laid their hands on you. Practice these things, immerse yourself in them so that all may see your progress. Keep a close watch on uh, on yourself and on the teaching. Persist in this, for by so doing, you will save both yourself and your hearers. There's so much to that passage. I wish I could just, you guys got the whole afternoon? No? Okay. That's okay. I saw somebody recoil a little bit. I love this passage. Um, In chapter 3, though, we read it last week, God sets forward the character qualifications for elders and deacons, church officers. right? And if it's sort of distilled down and we we look at how we just defined godliness as, as a love for God and neighbor, then we're going to see that If we look back in chapter 3, we're going to see that church leaders are simply mature Christians, those who practice godliness on a regular basis. They have a firm grasp on sound doctrine. And the the only other thing you find there is that elders in particular have to have a gift to teach. But what is the real qualification for all of this aside from a gift to teach? Maturity. The practice of godliness. Godliness. Here, the reason why God would set down the qualifications for elders and deacons in that previous chapter becomes much more clear. Like we have these just sort of general qualifications, but we're not told why. Well, now we are in chapter four. See, Timothy is an elder and his job is twofold. He's to be an example and to devote himself to teaching. That first one is really important as we consider godliness. Look, there are a lot of churches that have pastors who aren't great examples for the flock. Like the the qualification process for elders and pastors in some churches gets a little hairy. It's a little questionable because they look more at skill or, or business acuity or whatever else it is rather than looking to the scriptures but the scriptures clearly declare that we are to be, as pastors, are to be clearly examples for the flock. And Paul says this here. In, uh, in verse 12, he says that you should be an example in speech, conduct, love, faith, and purity. I've seen this uh, a lot, in, particularly in like the, the early 2000s, uh, Pastors not really expressing or being an example of, uh, in, uh, of, of godliness in speech. Um, look, pastors with dirty mouths might seem cool, but Jesus spoke with clarity and purpose, not profanity. Clear? Likewise, pastors who are great in the pulpit but lazy at home have failed to manage their households well and do not qualify as elders. That's the example in conduct. They're also to be examples in love. So, these pastors who would promise friendship to everyone but love no one are liars and fakes. Pastors are also to be examples in faith. And so, those who teach good doctrine with their mouths but don't believe it with their hearts are merely professional liars and not good examples. I don't see how you could go to a church with a pastor who you know is not living what he preaches in the pulpit. In fact, I would argue you should vote with your feet. Walk out. Done. If that guy made it there and he's not being consistently corrected by his group of elders, his his, his elder board, not that church. Likewise, pastors are to be examples in purity. Those who indulge in sexual promiscuity teach the flock that holiness, the holiness to which God calls us, is meant to be toyed with. Even just that toying with the line, wherever that line might be, that idea, that says to the flock, hey, it's fine. And you might walk over that, that's fine. I can't call you out because I do it too. No. That's not okay. That's not the kind of leadership that the church needs. We need examples to the flock. We need godly leadership. We're also called as pastors to devote ourselves to the reading of Scripture. And believe me, I'll get here in a second. I know not all of you are pastors. In fact, there's only one other that I know of in the room. But I'll get there in just a second. But I want you to hear this, okay? Pastors are also supposed to devote themselves to the reading of Scripture. We shouldn't disregard the Word of God. We have to emphasize Scripture and give the people of God all that they need. Because again, I said earlier, historically the the Christian people could not read. Like, normal people in daily life didn't learn to read that often in ancient times. Especially in the medieval times when, everything kind of went crazy, but... Nobody was learning to read. They were just trying to live. They were trying to subsist. So why would we read scripture? Because it gives us everything that we need. And so we spend a lot of time in scripture here. That's why we do this. We're also called to exhort. I think this is a little bit more of a a personal idea. We... We are called to go to one another and and do personal discipleship and talk through questions and help you to apply the scriptures to your life. And finally, we are supposed to teach, which is what I'm doing now and what we always do in our community groups and we do in, in many other ways. Because pastors who neglect sound doctrine starve the sheep. I could give you a lot of platitudes and some kind of Christian stuff to think about or I can give you sound doctrine, sound teaching from the word of God. That is gonna be far more helpful to you as you pursue godliness. But what does that have to do with the rest of you, right? You're like, well, maybe you you don't have any thoughts of being a pastor or a deacon. Well, again, it's an example, right? So those officers are meant to be examples for the flock. What does that mean? That the, that the flock is supposed to pursue that. They're supposed to see these other people and go, oh, they're following Christ in this area of their life. I'd like to go that direction. That's how that looks. I never understood that that's how I should address my wife. I never understood that that's how I should parent my child. And that's going to rub off on me a little bit. And I'm going I'm to go, oh, like, Maybe I could try this technique here because this, is, this seems more loving, more caring, not, not just in the broadly cultural sense, but in the biblical sense. We have to have these examples, and the reason that we have examples is because the flock is meant to pursue godliness by seeing these examples in practice. But in some ways, we're all examples to others. And this is where I kind of want to get to today. Everything that I've talked about, being being true in speech and conduct and love and faith and purity and even being in scripture and, and learning to teach to some degree, all of those things are incredibly important for every single Christian because you are an example to others. Think about it. Who have you discipled in your life? Who have you talked to about Christ? Who have you just rubbed shoulder to shoulder with? Who have you spent your life with Seeing them seeing how you do life in light of the gospel? They know you're a Christian. This is Okay, look, this is old school, but like, what is your witness? That's the question that I'm asking. What are you saying about Christ by your life? And how is that providing an example for others? Because they're going to look at you. If your parents, then you, your children are going to look to you and say, well, this is how my parents did it. And either they're going to see Christ there or hopefully they've been trained well enough to go, I don't see Christ there. But my guess is that generally children are going to follow in the footsteps of their parents. You're all examples to a degree. My friends have been an example to me, right? I, like I might be a pastor or elder here at this church, but my friends in this church have have spent time with me and they have admonished me and corrected me in ways that, that I can't even begin to relate. I've seen them as examples in different areas of their lives. I've seen how they interact with one another, and I've gone, man, that's, that is far more Christ-like than I am half the time. We need examples in the church. We need everyone to pursue godliness so that we can look at one another's lives and we can pursue godliness. Paul encourages Timothy to practice these things and immerse himself in them so that all may see his progress. It's not a bad thing for people to see who you are or how you've been progressing. A lot of Christians like to think, well, like this is my private spiritual life, but that's not what's going on here. He says, no, no, no like invite people in so that they can see how things are changing. How has Christ transformed your life? In the last verse of this passage, he, he says, Keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. Persist in this, for by so doing you will save both yourself and your hearers. Man, that's like a, a summary of this whole passage. Keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. Now, if you're not teaching someone directly, if you're like, I'm not in a teacher relationship, the same... Basic word here, doctrine, keep a close self on your uh, close watch on yourself. That's your practice. And the doctrine that you believe. What do you believe today? I want to leave you with that question uh, as we begin to close. What do you believe? Are you pursuing godliness? Are you taking what you know about the gospel and applying it to your life? Are you just holding it in as something that's separate from your practice? Or do you even know what the gospel is? Like the true gospel of Jesus Christ says that he came and lived a sinner's, or lived a perfect life and died a sinner's death. We talked about this during baby dedication earlier. And that by faith, we are saved. It was by grace through faith. Man, if that doesn't resonate in you and drive you toward practice, drive you toward exercising love for God and love for neighbor, you've got some thinking to do. You've got to ask that question, how does my belief lead to my practice? I know this is a, a pretty, uh, I, I like to call, uh, call it an imperative passage. It says, do this. And it can sound like I'm preaching law at you that condemns you, perhaps. That's not what I'm trying to get at. I want you to remember the love and grace and mercy that God has given you in Christ Jesus. Think about how you have failed And then how he has brought you out. How he has made you new. And then ask the question, how might I live my life in light of that reality? This law does not condemn if you are in Christ. Godliness, the comparison of of examples and things like that, it does not condemn you if you are in Christ. It encourages you to live a life of thankfulness to God and of love toward one another. I, would, I, I hope that, that we are that kind of church today and we will continue to be that kind of church into the future. That we will be a people who hold to sound doctrine, put it into practice, and that the whole aim is love of God and neighbor. Not because it merits salvation, but because God has done it all for us and he gives us so much. I hope that you believe this today. I really do. I hope that every single one of you is reminded of just the love that God has for you and that you would be motivated to pursue godliness, that that godliness kind of training that you need in your life. Grab that devotional off the shelf that's gathering dust, or pick a book of the Bible that that seems interesting to you and applicable to you, and, and study through it. Get a good study Bible. Spend time in prayer. Man, that's a hard one for me. I, can I confess that? Sometimes it's really hard for me to spend time dedicated in lengthy prayer because all the stuff in the world is screaming at you, and you you can't find a way to shut it out, but that's, I need that. I need that in my life. And I think you need that in your lives too. When's the last time that you reached out to somebody that you knew was in need or maybe just knew needed a little bit of love, right? I'm talking about biblical love, right? Like this this idea of, Reaching out and being able to, to lovingly correct, even to say, okay, like I see this in your life and I, I understand why you are where you are, but like this is not in accordance with your faith. What's going on? How, can I help you to fight this thing that is obviously hurting you? Like that's real love right there. It's not unconditional affirmation, it's real honest to goodness love. How might you apply godliness to your life today? Think about that. Like how do like as you leave this place, what changes? What's different? Who are you? Who are you going to be? What are you training for? Are you training for a life that is fleeting? Are you training for the life to come? Thanks for listening to the Mosaic Church Sermon Podcast. For more information about Mosaic, including location and service times, or to support us financially, visit our website at mosaicrva.com or find us on Instagram and Facebook at Mosaic Church RVA. Remember, it's not about us, it's all about Jesus.